I think it was December 2022, we were at about 6.9% core inflation rate, and it's been dropping every single month since then. We're down to about 5.2%. So inflation's on the right trend as well. And so it's, we're sort of, given the fact that interest rates only are only elevated to control inflation, you know, I think that the, the significant probability is that interest rates will start to come down, which will increase access to credit, which also will increase um, consumer confidence because people feel more like that they've got their, their standard of living under control. Hello and welcome. You're listening to Dash.Insider, the auditory epicenter for property investors seeking a life of freedom, choice, and abundance. Joining me on today's episode is Sean Simpson, repeat guest, repeat pest. Welcome back. For the excellent repeat pest to start off. That's very good. <laughs> <laughs> That's a keen to be quick, here. quick little heckle on the way in. Yeah. Sean, the people want to know. People want to know what is going to happen in property investing in 2024. And that's what I wanted to talk to you about. You are, in our business, one of the few people that's really um, at the helm of looking at where is the market going. We often say, and we've said it plenty of times before on this podcast, if you want to make loads of money, work at where, demand, where demand is going, stand in front of it and open your wallet. So part of that is to actually work out where it's going. And so I want to talk in this episode around where is the property market going in 2024, some predictions, if you may. Um, but before we do that, let's talk about 2023. Like, What's your kind of synopsis? So 2023 has been a really interesting year. We saw interest rates rising. I can't even remember how many interest rate rises we've had now, 12 or 13 of them. Yeah, I mean, it's obviously started in 2022, but nonetheless- you know, we've had a load of interest, loads of loads of interest rate rises this year. We've seen changing dynamics in capital city markets, in regional markets. We've seen some buyers active, some buyers inactive. What, what what's your take on how the on the a bit of a recap on the twenty twenty three market? Yeah, it was a very very interesting year. I think it's a really good good time to sort of reflect because a lot of the the media coming into twenty twenty three was you know we're going to see corrections and, and lots of the media that a lot of people absorb is often very very macro and macro in Australia quite often just means Sydney or Melbourne or what's happening there. So it's pretty interesting to look back that um, you know start or end of twenty twenty two a lot of economists a lot of big banks were talking about corrections and we've actually seen. Obviously, during COVID, it was this huge, like, you know, macro unification of like a lot of the markets in Australia all started doing the same thing, which was going up, which is actually the the exception, not the norm. So, as we came into 2023, we started to see all these different markets start to perform differently again and split off, which I think was one of the most most interesting things um, because the the dramatic effect of how much they split off was, was huge. You started to have markets going backwards, you know, some capital cities having corrections while you know, the media is pumping out those headlines about those corrections. And in some of these areas that we're in, there is like from strength to strength, it's significantly harder to purchase in them even compared to peak COVID times. So, we even um we even run a bit of a study like not too long ago as well, just looking at gross listings because a lot of people a lot of people thought about, you know, interest rates going up. There's all these fire sales, distress sales. And a lot of the places we're actually buying are currently the lowest volume of um, stock coming on the market in 17 years. And that's not even accounting for the increase in dwellings at that time. That's just gross number of listings, not a percentage. So that's really interesting. What is your take on that? I mean, I, I, I kind of know why, but like for the benefit of like, what's your take on that? Why, why do you think that is? Because you're right, it's, it's so interesting, you know, this, the, the way the media treats the property market, you know, this whole idea. And it was quite funny with the whole mortgage cliff thing, because this is part of the thesis. This is part of the thesis, which, you know, Anyone can go back on this. One of the things I love about this podcast is uh, is that it timestamps all the things that I've said. So, like, you know, for good, bad, or indifferent, like, it's like, okay, you know, sometimes I mean, I'm wrong. I'm not trying to pr- profess that I'm always correct. But one of the things we were saying is like, uh, is that the mortgage cliff is, was not is a non-event. Um, but it was so interesting. It was, I think, it was originally it was going to be in February or something, and everyone's like, oh, it's all going to happen. Nothing changed, and then it was like, no, 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 it's coming up, and it just kept this keeps this thing that was going to keep coming up, and all of a sudden. Everyone was going to be able to not afford their uh, mortgages anymore, and everyone was going to have to fire sale their properties, and the whole property market was going to collapse, which is farcical. But because they grab these ideas, these these singular ideas, and they just paint it on the whole property market, like this is the mortgage cliff, and this is what happens. That's funny. I can even sort of start to start to run through some examples here and some data, which I'd love to love to show you guys. But um, in some places where affordability is something that I'm sure we'll get into in this in this episode, in some places. Mortgage cliffs did exist. I mean, you saw an increase in increase in supply. People couldn't afford their mortgages. In other places, the, yeah. the polar where's opposite. Where's, where's an example? Because, so I'll just because because I this there's an inverse. Yeah, you said they're a polar opposite, and this is the inverse effect that I think is going to be useful. So, what's an example of a place where the mortgage cliff did 
Um, yeah. Uh, so I'll just I'm, I'm going to pull a few examples out. Anyone, who, show anyone who's watching this on YouTube, you're getting some insider. Uh, in, this is this is what we call the suburb selection dashboard, which most people don't get to see. And this is actually one of the. This is a tool that we developed internally to help us identify the right locations at the right time. So pretty um top secret. A crystal wall. So I just want to show you really quickly something on um, relative affordability and how interest rates can affect different places. So we're over in WA very, very quickly. I just wanted to show you this suburb here. You can see the median weekly household income of $1,557. Yep. Um, and I'm sure if I pulled any of these little places, like let's just go over here, it's going to be significant. So $2,100 in this suburb. Mm -hmm. When you come over to the supply and demand indicators, this little orange line that we have down here is the supply of new listings to the market. So that's any listings that have been launched on the market. As you can see, there is just a steady trend downwards for a substantial amount of time. And in this suburb, just another thing to really, really quickly note, you've got the median weekly household income $2,100 um, and a median sales price of, say, half a million dollars if you're taking the average. Mm. Once you jump over to a, a, a capital capital, like let's just grab something expensive in, in Brisbane. If we jump up into central Brisbane, um, I can fairly well bet. Let's have a look. So, you've actually got a slightly lower median weekly household income That's compared super to- That's interesting. So, that was like 2,100 down to, down to whatever that is, 2,000-ish, yeah. Compared to 2.6 million to buy a house. So, as you can see, the delta there in terms of affordability is wild. Like the, the people earning the incomes in a lot of these- you know, regional capitals or whatever. Hey, you Sean, want to call we them. just but we we broke up there. I just got to cut you off because we broke up there. I didn't think we could afford right. it. We let's not ruin the flow. But we just um we dropped off just as you were introducing the price there. So what's super interesting about this is that the first place we were looking at there had a median household income of twenty one hundred dollars. This suburb, New Farm, median household income of two thousand dollars, so slightly less than that. Um, two thousand sixty nine. But the price difference is phenomenal. It's crazy, yeah. So, that, that's the funny thing where people can paint these ideas where, hey, this mortgage cliff's coming. It's like the mortgage cliff in, in New Farm, I bet, is very, very real because people on the same income are paying however much that is. Ten hey, let's look at it. Let's look at it. Show us the- Let's have a look at the supply line. Yeah. So, if you have a look at the supply oh, here, you've had, isn't it? you've had a dip where, interestingly enough, when did interest rates started in May, didn't they? Yeah. So- Here's May, so there's the start of the interest rate rises. You can see there is a little drop up. It's actually an interesting it's little increase, increase in listings. Right? Yeah, increase in listings. So you can see two very, very different suburbs where interest rates have two very, very different effects. Yeah, that's super interesting. That's super interesting, and and this is one of the things that um that I think a lot of people don't understand. And you're you're right when you said earlier about the um you know the, the way the media treats the property market as this. They say the Australian property market, and it gets unfairly weighted by the market capitalization size of Sydney, Melbourne, and also Brisbane to a, to a, to a lesser degree as well. Because of the, the, the overall value of all of the properties in those markets, what happens in those locations tends to affect the on aggregate average across the country. And so the, the example that I always use of this is BHP is the largest single, uh, uh, you know, it's number one on the ASX 200 is the largest, largest um, size business in Australia. If the BHP share price drops by 10%, what is going to happen to the ASX 200 index? The ASX 200 index will probably drop by 2 3% or something like that. It won't drop by 10. It'll drop by a few percent because it'll be dragged down purely by the size of that the biggest whale in the market coming down. And so interest rates, you know, we did a study on interest rates and found that there was very little correlation at all with um, property prices. But that also doesn't account for the fact that in locations where you've got an extremely disparate uh, an extreme difference between the relative affordability, so the income versus the prices, necessarily that is going to have a larger impact. And that's typically in those markets where you've got property prices that are over $1.5 million as a kind of a, a general kind of uh, mental model. The inverse is, is true though. Why, so why, why is it that, why is it that it, where there's higher relative affordability, why is it that there's less properties on the market? Yeah, so this is this is an interesting one again, where people think interest rates up, more stock comes on the market. People want to sell. It's actually the opposite effect in places that sit below certain ratios of relative affordability. And the reason that that could be dialed into a huge number of things. And another interesting thing to note as well, there's been proven studies that, especially over the last little while, it not only has restricted overall stock, but the percentage of stock that's being sold by investors rather than owner occupiers increases dramatically. So you can put that down to a huge number of things, but 
back to the first point, what we can get into is is what I like to call sort of like a stock spiral, which is where owner occupiers in a certain suburb, when there's virtually no listings to buy and their access to credit has been restricted by interest rates, the traditional move of upgrading the house or moving to a nicer suburb or anything like that, there's physically nothing for them to buy. So what that then does is that prevents them from listing their property for sale back in the original suburb, which then prevents somebody in the suburb further down looking to go to the second home, listing their home to potentially buy that one. And you end up in this little spiral where owner occupiers just physically have nowhere to go. And it also causes some really interesting things with prices because when owner occupiers are in a market where there's huge investment demand, there's not a lot to buy, they're a lot less attached to what they pay for a home. And when they get into these chaotic situations where there's just physically nothing to buy, they might have sold and they have to buy something else, they start setting new precedents in market value because a lot of the investors in the area, they'll tap out once it goes above what a a CMA or a rear-facing valuation might say. These owner-occupiers might have a week until settlement on their their place they've just sold and they need something. So, they'll go and pay 50, 60 over listing price in some of these areas and it continually sets this precedent, which I think can sort of drive quite a bit of growth. Yeah, it's, it's super interesting, right? Because um, what, what we're pointing there to pointing to there is a two sided marketplace effect, and so like the the biggest issue with any uh, marketplace model is that first in the first instance you have to have the cold start problem. Like you have to have um, some supply to meet the demand, and if there's not enough demand, then the supply won't be there, and vice versa. If there's not enough supply, there won't be enough demand, and so you have this, and so then. That is why, if you can get it right, you can get a lot of growth in um, in uh, two-sided marketplace models. But also, you can get into a downward spiral if uh, one of those sides of the ledger gets... So, Uber is a great example of that, right? So, it, there could be tons of demand, but if all of a sudden there's less drivers, um, there's going to be less ability for people to get cars uh, when, when they're less demand. So, yeah. So, then people go, well, fuck this. It's not that reliable. I'm going to stop using Uber and it starts to go backwards. Now, the other interesting thing that you pointed to there though, 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 that was really interesting is that the, the the property market in Australia actually operates on a matching market model now, which is which is really interesting. And so the the difference between a, a commodity market, which is like pure just pure supply and demand. Now, supply and demand does have an effect on the real estate market, but it's not the it's not the actual it's actually not the primary market model that affects the real estate market. The, the primary market model is a matching market model because. In roughly, on aggregate across all markets in Australia, roughly 70% of owners are owner-occupiers. Roughly 30% are um, investors, which necessarily means there's more people that are buying emotionally. And because there are more people buying emotionally rather than just based on the numbers, they're prepared to pay a price based on how they feel rather than what is the um, kind of intrinsic underlying value of of an asset. Which is which is effectively the same as a as a dating model. Like if you think about like the dating market, like Tinder, right? So it's not about like uh, male female match. Okay, man wants woman, woman wants man, match match match. It's like okay, do I like the look of that one? Uh, what do I think about their personality? You know, and these are the things that define whether or not that there's a a valuable match in that market. And the same thing goes in in real estate. And there's all these emotional characteristics. So a matching market exists when the pricing decision or the transaction decision is based on subject subjectivity and emotion which is exactly what happens in the real estate market because like do i like the look of it you know can i see myself in the kitchen and so homeowners drive property prices far more than uh investors and you're talking about people paying overs and all of that kind of stuff and investors also then start to if they start to get to a stage where there's not a lot of stock on market they start to get fomo they start to get emotional they then start to go oh no i want to participate and so then they start acting in a way that's asymmetrical to the actual intrinsic underlying value so creates these really super fascinating market dynamics um in the whole sector which i you know personally i find really uh really interesting do you you kind of does that resonate with you as well? Yeah, yeah. I, I don't have any graphs or data on on property Tinder, but I yeah. do definitely, do definitely agree. And it's actually critical. It's actually critical to think about because knowing, especially when you're doing asset selection, having the end in mind when you're purchasing it, and understanding where the demand is going to be for in that asset, if there is an exit plan or or how you're looking at it, is critical. And to see the movement of that demand around Australia is also really, really interesting because investment demand can shift at different rates to occupier demand in different places, and it's very, very not just interesting, but critical to sort of understand how those can can affect property prices. Let's talk. Let's talk about that, and let's start sort of throwing our eyes into the future. Let's start also looking at about twenty twenty four. So the way it seems to be that the way people have been thinking about, and we've seen this massively in twenty twenty three, 
the way that uh, people have been thinking about buying, particularly investors, but also also owner occupiers, because as, as I mentioned, owner occupiers drive markets more than real estate investors, and you've still got that you still apply the three because of that. Actually, you apply the three core fundamentals of uh, location selection, which is jobs, lifestyle, and affordability. Right. So, because people want to be able to live somewhere where they've got economic opportunity, where they're going to enjoy living, and the the, the affordability is relative to their income. Right, and so if you've got those three things that are working well together, you have you have a stable market, which is good, stable growing in, in high demand market. I've actually got something super interesting, which I think I haven't showed you before, but I've been diving into some. We, we might get into this a little bit more with migration, but I've actually dived into a few um, little bit older studies, but studies that people have done as to why people will migrate interstate, interstate, or from overseas. And yeah, well, just, let's dig into it because what I wanted to talk about was like how is the, how are these movement patterns played out, but then also where is it going? So let's, let's dive into yeah, it. Yeah, so I'll just jump over. Um, so as you can see here, this study was done, I think, 2019, um, but it was quite a substantial study as to why people might move around the state. And it's funny, when you start to look at the breakdown of reasons, when we talk about jobs, lifestyle, and affordability, you can see here family reasons is a large percentage, which we probably can't, can't hold on to, but you've got employment here, which is jobs. Purchase owned dwelling, probably affordability. Wanted a smaller home or to downsize, probably affordability. Accessibility, you can probably say affordability. Lease terminated or not renewed by landlord is again affordability. Bigger or better home, affordability or lifestyle. So essentially all of the reasons other than family in this study that were seen as reasons why people would move are boiled down to those three things. And you can see it actually varies dramatically over the different age groups as well. And then another interesting, this is just the second part of that study, people were surveyed as to reasons that would increase their desire to move. And this one, funnily enough, doesn't have lifestyle on there. But um, a lot of people, there's some some wild left-wing things in there. No, but some some of these things like, uh, you know, like um, increasing cost of living, right? That's also going to have a huge amount of affordability. Yeah. But it's also going to impact lifestyle, right? So your ability to live the life you want, right? So these are directly financially related, like a 2% rise uh, or more rise in interest. It's interesting that um, that the the rise in interest rate, 2% or more interest rate rise was like the second lowest, right? For, you know. Now, this is this is freestyle. They surveyed a huge amount of people that had moved and just asked, why did you want to move? But you can see here, all bar, look, electricity prices are, are probably going to be similar everywhere. And COVID-19 was a separate discussion. But you can see here, loss of income, Two percent or more interest rate rises, cheaper house prices, rents going up, or increased cost in living can all boil back down to jobs, lifestyle, affordability. So it's very, very interesting to see that not only have we just talked about this for quite a quite a while about reasons why property prices would be driven by these things, but it's actually been proven that this is the main reasons why people would choose to move either around their state or interstate as well. Yeah, it's super interesting. So, given given that, where do you, how do you see that playing out in twenty twenty four? What do you see, what's your kind of thesis on that? Yeah, so we'll probably we'll probably start top line with um immigration and migration because it's been a huge thing that a lot of people have, have spoken about recently. So I'll just give some context for everyone because I know everyone's saying you know immigration is going through the roof, but it's very very important to understand the context that the current data that we have is mar- from March this year. So it is a little bit dated, but it's March um, traveling backwards a year. We had an increase of 454,000 people into Australia over that time period, and that's over double what we were pre-COVID. So, you're talking not just a, a slight increase in people coming to the country, a phenomenal increase in people. So, you can see the population grew by over half a million people from the year to March 2023. So, a massive, massive increase. So, um, we will get into it as we go along, but you combine this with the existing existing housing crisis, lack of building approvals, not enough homes being built, you do really have a perfect storm to create a very, very substantial push in property prices in some places next year. So, I think it's it's very critical that that the um, yeah the crystal ball, crystal ball, we don't just say, look, Australia is in for a huge boom next year because I feel like it will be a boom, but it will be in certain locations where you can move in front of demand like this. Not all locations will, will benefit from this sort of stuff. Yeah, so I think I think it's a really uh, interesting point. I'm just actually trying to look up some um, migration, current migration stats as well, because I think that's really really interesting. Because yeah, there's a new you know we about fifteenth. So yeah, close. got it, got it. Yeah, it's like, okay, we're <laughs> yeah. close. So I was like, where's the, where's the new data? Um, it's really interesting that you talk about that because a lot of people, and um, we've sort of talked about it on this on this show as well. You know, the the idea well, there's increasing immigration, so there's more people, and there's less building approvals. Okay, so. Um, necessarily on a macro level supply demand those two things don't meet there's going to be there's so many layers 
yeah, think of the, that that you need to think about. Well, totally right because that discussion of like we've had four hundred and uh, what four hundred and four fifty thousand four, yeah, yeah, four hundred fifty odd thousand people coming into the country. We haven't had that many new properties built, I don't think, um, over that no, period of time. So, about two hundred thousand new dwellings, 200, something about like that. Two hundred thousand, yeah. right? That's, that's not including normal population increase as well. So yeah, yeah, a lot totally. Of that's just immigra- that's just immigration. That's not even organic yeah. and all of the other kind of stuff, right? And so, but that points to like a macro that 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 addresses the macro that says in Australia the number of people has gone up by this much, and in Australia the um, number of houses has only gone up by this much, and there's a deficit. What it doesn't point to is that some locations are going to asymmetrically be impacted by that positively and asymmetrically impacted by that negatively, right? And this is where it gets really interesting because to your point, you know, when, when um, you know, during sort of 2021, more specifically 2020 uh, broadly, we saw most markets in Australia move in a similar direction, which is super unusual. That's crazy. I didn't like it. I was like, this is not good. This is not good. Uh, because we knew that some of those locations were going to go down again because they didn't have the underlying drivers, and they did. Uh, and so what we see now is a return to normalization where some markets will move and, and up and some markets will move down, and you know it's going to become more uh, variable. And the because of the increased mobility that people have to be able to work from all over the place, increase the amount of people I've spoken to recently that are working from places they previously wouldn't have been able to work from because they've got Starlink, you know, like it's, it's insane. At a meeting this week with someone, they're like, "Oh, well, I have to visit my parents in Tamworth, and for the first time, I can work from here because we've got Starlink." You know, it's like oh, I don't know, I don't know about Tamworth, but well, well, that's <laughs> where they were. They said it was good, you know. So, but I don't know. That's no prediction on Tamworth, but it's interesting because when you apply the lens of the sort of immigration context with the housing context, then with the lifestyle, jobs, and affordability context, you then start to realise that. There are going to be some specific markets which will outperform based on those dynamics because it doesn't matter where you're coming from. You still want the same things. You still want to be able to live a good life in a good place with good economic opportunities. You want to be able to have some money left over at the end of the day. And if you're in New Farm and the average income is $2,000 and the median property price is two point whatever million dollars, that five, yeah. $2.5 million, like no wonder people are sitting there crying, crying out and going, I'm never going to be able to afford a house. Yeah, no shit. Like that looks... That's not good. That's not good. You can't buy a property. That's crazy. Um, but that's not all of Australia, right? And so there's plenty of places in Australia where the local relative affordability, because this is what people are going to get their head around. It's it's local relative affordability. Just because you're living in Sydney and earning three hundred thousand dollars a year, your that's your your affordability based on you doesn't matter. What matters is local relative affordability. So what's the average income in the area? So points to this kind of um. Uh, difference in the market. What, what else you got to? Any other kind of thoughts on that? No, just another one that I'd, I'd like to throw in that I don't. I haven't actually heard anyone speak about, but it's actually the mobility of Australia's investment demand as well. We've been sort of seeing a trend that I've, I've given the, the buzzword of the like the liquefaction of Australia's investment demand over the last couple of years, which is where um, we've seen a massive increase in you know the buyers advocacy space and and geographically remote investment, which has actually caused some really sort of whack things in patterns everywhere. Like for a good example, I've, I've called it the Townsville effect, but up in Townsville uh, about, say, May last year, all of a sudden interest rates went up by one, one or two. People freaked out and they're like, we need yields. We need cash flow. Yields is the problem. Townsville has exceptionally high yields. So all of a sudden we saw this just just like flood of people chasing yields in Townsville. And then we saw growth in investor-based assets outrunning owner-occupier-based assets. So what I'm talking about there is like uniblocks, high-yielding things. Like, for example, speaking of an example of like getting in the way of demand and, and um, opening your wallet, like right when that first or second interest rate um, went up, I bought a block of units in Townsville because you could see straight away, all of a sudden people were like, we need yields, we need to come in here and start, start pillaging this sort of thing. So, it's actually causing the movement of the investment-based demand across Australia to be a lot more mobile. Hang on a second. Like, what happened to your unit block? Was it good? Yeah, well, I can I can go to the numbers if you want. Like we we yeah, let's go to the numbers. I mean, you, yeah, you, no, no, it's used it as a real example. So you saw this is a great example. You saw that that investment demand was changing because the the psychodynamic was that people were like, we need to chase yields. You identified that trend. You said, I'm going to stand in front of it, and I'm going to go buy a unit block in this place so that I can see the demand is going. What happened? So tell us, tell us. Yeah, give us a because I could quite clearly see every, you know, a huge amount of buyers' advocacies were all of a sudden like 
clients need cash flow. We're running out of running out of yield. Things are going negative when we've always said cash flow positive. So they just piled in. So we bought that unit block for five fifty in June of June of that year. And I think it was like six months later we got a valuation at seven eighty. So it's like dramatic, dramatic growth. But that also as well was standing in the way of another trend which I noticed, which was um, people squeezing to affordability in terms of rents as well. So there was a huge amount of rental increase in cheaper rentals across Townsville because people had to get in cheap rentals, cost of living was going up. So, you know, we bought these things. I think they were all at 270, 260 a week each, and they're all at 350 a week each. So you bump the rents up, obviously the yield goes up and the inherent value goes up as well. So it was not just the demand on that side, it was also um, being able to stand in front of rental demand, increasing your rents as well. So it's all like a perfect storm, but I think it's a good example because a lot of people quite often can sort of talk about these things, but it's, it's a good example to always show sort of what we've done and what we would think about or how we would think about property as well. Yeah, yeah it's super interesting. And it's also like to, to your point, so obviously there are a lot more um, participants in the buyer's advocacy space, which broadly speaking, I think is a good thing, by the way, just for, for anyone listening to this, I, I, I broadly speaking, think it's a good thing. I, I have some reservations around the capabilities of the participants in the market and that that's where um, my primary concern um, uh, for for you know for, for investors exists. Like, there's a lot of people out there who don't know what they're doing, and you know that, and that's a concern. That's a concern for me. But broadly speaking, I think the proliferation of uh, of an advocacy space uh, is good when it's good. So that yeah, that's the sort of cautionary piece in there. I think it's the macro. It's good. I think there needs to be a bit of tightening up around the, the quality of um, what's going on there, because it allows people to invest anywhere in Australia, whereas traditionally you think if you want to go the extreme, it was once upon a time, it was we need to invest somewhere within five minutes drive us and we go and look at the property and that's where we invest, which obviously would have prohibited a lot of people from ever getting to their goals. Whereas now when you look at it, as it we get more and more able to spread out and, and invest wherever, it's going to dramatically increase people's results and, and the amount of people that can get to their goals, I feel. A second a second order effect that I think is good about it though, is that it, um, it kind of, uh, t- and it sort of touches on the point you made there as well, it takes some of the emotion out of it, right? Because if you are uh, self-investing, oh, I'm just going to go do my own thing. Then um, you're necessarily going to be more emotionally involved. If you put an intermediate, if you treat your real estate portfolio like a business, right, and if you can put an intermediary between you and the asset selection, you're going to start to run your portfolio like a business. I have seen any time I've seen an investor adopt that mentality, I've seen them make tons more growth in their portfolio. They move faster. They act better. The ones who uh, are still holding on to it like I bought a house and this is like my like and they get really kind of um, it, it's like the Tinder point again people will just get attached to the, like the look of it I've got a great story about that too we moved from Bathurst up to Cairns so I'd never seen that unit block which obviously was a phenomenal performance but I drove Maddie my partner through Townsville and we're like oh we'll drive past it and we drove through that street Maddie was going Poof. I don't know it's like instantly like you know it's not within the property investment space but instantly if you had have just taken say taken her, gone to this property, it would have been, no, thank you. This is this is pretty airy sort of thing. But nonetheless, it was an excellent performing property, regardless of how it looks or how it feels or what the street's like or whether or not I like spending any time in Townsville is completely irrelevant. Yeah, 100%. And look, we saw that early on. There was um, a client that we were working with uh, very early on uh, in the Dash Dot, uh, in Dash Dot's journey, like, like back in early 2019. And um, we found a property. They happened to live like an hour and a half from where the property was. And they said, oh, this is awesome. And they were so excited. They were just like, can't wait. And so they decided to go there on the weekend, go check it out. And then they never, were like- Never ends well. You know, it never ends well. And they were like, they were like, oh my God. I can't, they, they, they said, I can't believe that you've presented this property. There are people here that are on the doll. And uh, that was, and I was like, okay. And like, they subsequently decided not to invest. Well, actually, no, let me reframe that. They actually did decide to invest. They decided to self-invest. And they told us about, about the property they purchased and we stayed in contact for a while. The property they purchased uh, over the last, um, like over the subsequent like three years, right, grew by something like 10 to 14%, something like that, in that kind of a vicinity. The property that they said no to grew something by something like 67%. And, and, and it's just like, yeah, it's, it's like, oh, you know, like if you could have just taken an emotional step back, you know, you, it's crazy. It's one of the worst things we see. And we actually did another, I don't have the study up actually, but we did a study where we grabbed every single suburb in Australia and we tested what the 75th percentile home within the 
median sales price band at what the 25th percentile home had done in terms of growth over the last 20 years. So essentially what you're doing is you're picking a really a pretty ordinary shocking house with the Commodores out the front and then you're picking something that's nice, a bit close to the beach or within the same suburb. And over the last three years, especially the 25th percentile home dramatically outperformed the other home. Over, If you wash it out over 20, they all grow about the same because the suburb will, will move at the same sort of rate. But especially over the last three years, the 25th percentile outperformed significantly like we're talking 40 i remember one suburb in in wa where the 25th it was a pretty hairy suburb at the best of times but the 25th percentile property which is like 250 grand asbestos like everything you think of that's you don't like in property it had grown 45 percent annually and the 75th percentile in the same in the same suburb in the same study had grown something like 19 percent so a phenomenal outperformance, but it, but it makes but it makes perfect sense, right? Because if you have a location, right, and uh, on one end of the spectrum, you've got well, let, let me rephrase that. If you've got a location, there is going to be a limit to based on the relative local affordability. There's going to be a limit to how expensive properties can get. Okay, so the upward mobility of prices has a cap, but from the lowest price property in the in the in the suburb, there's loads of room, right? So. At, so the, in the first instance, there may be more desirability on one end of the spectrum. Let's say get the houses closer to the beach, for example. But then those houses closer to the beach get so expensive, no one can buy them. And so then you ha- then the delta between the lowest priced location and the highest priced location is the highest. And so then you have a spring effect that pulls the other one up. Mm. Right? And, and interest rates worse. Interest rates squash that cap too. So over the last few years, that cap that we were talking about at the top end can slowly be restricted as well by people's access to credit. So yeah. Speaking of interest rates, what are your thoughts on interest rates in 2024? Well, it's an interesting one. So interest rates, like we're in a perfect storm at the moment, macro, which will cause some substantial growth in 2024. I think if they throw interest rates into that mix, which is likely from all reports that we've looked at, you could start to see movement in a lot of these places where we've said have sat stagnant because of relative affordability. A couple of notches down in interest rates and a big spike in consumer sentiment, you might start to see growth moving back into a lot of the areas that have sat for a little bit. So you're talking your, your, your more expensive capitals, not necessarily your super blue chip, but your more expensive capitals. However, um, that's always an if and a but. It's it's when they come down, how much do they come down? You know, how relatively affordable is the suburb? There's a whole lot of things to throw in there. Um, however, I don't see interest rates being the sole push for this kind of boom or price growth next year. They're, they're not the only thing that's required for, for it to go up. There's this when you look at the affordability in a lot of these places we've been talking about, there is so much room in these markets, um, these smaller capitals and regionals and places that haven't necessarily 200%ed like Sydney has in the last 10 years. There's still so, so, so much room in terms of afford- affordability in these areas that interest rates won't be the only thing that, that pushes them all. It'll definitely kick them kick them in the, like, in the rear end if they do. Um, however, it's not going to be the sole reason why they keep going. Yeah, it's, it's super interesting, right? Because um, consumer confidence, it's been hovering around 80 points since I think like mid-2022, broadly speaking, right? Basically, when interest rates started going up, pretty much, it, the, the consumer confidence had dropped, had been tapering off. Everyone was talking about interest rate rises. And then it dropped to about the same level as it was during COVID. And it's been hovering around that mark since, since then, which is really interesting because the long-term average for consumer confidence is about 100, 100 points. Um, I think the the peak has been like 124 points or something like that, but the but the average is about 100, and so you've kind of got this like subdued consumer confidence, uh, you know, kind of trend, which once the consumer confidence, consumer sentiment changes, because psychographics are, in my point of view, the the big they're far more important than demographics or any other kind of things we look at. So once the consumer uh, confidence changes and start people start to resume, that's going to be the big the big driver. But you know, I think right now we're in the and I've said this before, and I'm going to keep saying it because I believe it is shrewd, that we're on the precipice of possibly the largest boom, property market boom in Australia's history. And I don't say that lightly, and I don't say that to try and drum up freaking demand. I'm actually a little bit, I'm a bit concerned. And I mean, on just on that front, you know, Dash Dot, we're, we're capping our client intake. So, so I'm not incentivized by this. We already have too many people trying to work with us, and we're going to be capping the amount of clients we take on board in 2024. And just on that note, if you are thinking about working with Dashrod, I suggest you get involved sooner rather than later because we are going to be capping the amount of clients we take on board um, in 2024, despite the fact that I'm sitting here saying I think it's going to be the largest property boom um, potentially in our uh, in, in Australia's history or at least uh, in our lifetime. Because and to, to your point, interest rates are just one part of that. There's like so many there's so many forces pushing in this direction 
consumer confidence. Um, we'll change interest rates. Will change. We'll get immigration. We've got we've got building uh, approvals, building approvals, all sorts of got, things, all these kind of things. And it's super interesting because the narrative around interest rates is starting to change as well. And I noticed um, in the US, which the US and Australian economies are radically different. And so I'm very cautious of say what happens in the US or what happened in Australia. How, however, um, on a sort of fiscal policy, uh, monetary policy, fiscal policy type basis, um, the RBA tends to do things that are relatively similar um, to the to the to the US federal. Um, and there's a lot of talk in the US at the moment about slashing interest rates. They've gone potentially too far um, in uh, that they've gone potentially too far in interest rates. I was watching an interview with Bill Ackman, who's um, a very successful investor. Uh, in the he he turned twenty seven million dollars into two point six billion dollars during the GFC. Um, pretty good, right? Yeah, pretty good. <laughs> pretty good. Um, he's he's adamant. He said that he thinks that he thinks it's going to be cut quick and fast. And if you look at core inflation rates, so uh, back in uh, December, don't quote me on this exactly, but I think it was December um, uh, twenty twenty two. We were at about six point nine percent core inflation rate, and it's been dropping every single month since then. We're down to about five point two percent. So inflation's on the right trend as well, and so it's, we're sort of given the fact that interest rates only are only elevated to control inflation, you know, I think that the the significant probability is that interest rates will start to come down, which will increase access to credit, which also will increase um, consumer confidence because people feel more like that they've got their, their standard of living under control, which is then that's just going to be fuel in this fire. Do you agree? Yeah, and inflation is definitely coming down more than they report. Like if we're gonna if we're gonna throw some some flames at some people as well. Like you, when you're looking at inflation, one of the highest ranked or heaviest weighted parts of CPI is housing. And when you up interest rates, a lot of costs of housing, rents, immigration, all these other things are shooting rents up. So that will artificially inflate that that inflation number, which will make it seem like it's way way out of control. So you keep bumping interest rates, and a lot of the housing costs continues to rise due to a lot of these factors. So, a lot of the other stuff that's weighted under it can be is, is what's dragging it down. However, you know, sometimes I don't know that the RBA really knows what the, like, the left hand's talking to the right sort of thing because you can keep jacking these interest rates up and all you're seeing, like we're seeing it across multiple areas, is rents and prices going through the roof, which is then causing further inflation. So, I know that there's, there's multiple forces that they have to look at, but it's definitely not, um, it's not reported it's not a great example of what's actually happening on the ground. There's CPI index, I don't feel. Yeah, and I, and, look, and said it before as well, but like the the like interest rates are pretty blunt instrument. Right? No. It's, <laughs> it's like it's a one it's one size fits all. We'll just jack this up and, and see how we go. Yeah, it's like trying to do brain surgery with a sledgehammer. Yeah. It's like okay, well, you know, like fair the enough. Colson, the Coles and Woolies lawsuit thing's another good example. I don't know if anyone's heard about this. Like they're saying inflation's going through the roof in Australia. Coles and Woolies have just recorded record profits. So they've obviously juiced these prices up. Costs of the, the stuff that they're selling has gone back down and they just haven't gone through with it. So, you know, the RBA might be just smashing, smash, trying to smash inflation with this blunt instrument by juicing up interest rates. Coles and Woolies aren't fussed at all about interest and rates. And the they're banks. Them. Yeah. Banks record <laughs> profits. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah it's, it's a very, very blunt instrument as to try to control something as complex as, as inflation. So, so. How do you think the investors should be thinking about 2024 then, right? So, you know, like I, I think it's I think it's reasonable to say that we believe that interest rates are going to come down in 2024, but I don't think people should be waiting for that to happen because I think I think I actually think that the opportunity exists to try and get in at first. Before, the, the opportunity is definitely before that. And if we go back to some of the factors that I think will have a, a far greater effect like migration and stuff like that, I know we touched on it earlier, but... Um, just looking back over to, to where that is going, you can see here, um, obviously, we were speaking about about 450,000 people entering the country and it, and it increasing. You can start to see, start to break that down into different steps as to where those people are going. You can look at internal migration to the regions. You can look at what states people are going. As you can see here, you can see as a percentage basis, Victoria, Queensland, Western Australia actually takes the cake on a percentage basis for international um, immigration, which is very, very rare. It's always been, for context, Sydney, Melbourne, Brisbane, like you're going down the capitals in, in order. This is overseas migration, not net internal. So, very, very interesting that a lot of those people, are, even from overseas, are going to these more affordable capitals. Um, so, I even had a quick look. REA even gives you a bit of an insight as to where 
those people. So interna- where international inquiry is coming through their website, so people that aren't in Australia yet. And you can see in terms of buying properties, it's a little bit more as you'd expect, but you've got Melbourne at the top, Gold Coast number two, which is quite unexpected, Brisbane, Sydney, and they've also split um, greater region and CBD, which I don't know about that, but you can see Perth's up here as well. Then when you go over to rents, you can see international people inquiring for rents. Again, Melbourne, Sydney, a lot of your people coming over on temporary visas, temporary working visas are going to go into the major capitals. Um, but then you've got Gold Coast, Brisbane, Perth that, up here as well. But that, that that effect has been in place for a long time. And typically what the movement pattern is for international because they go to Melbourne and Sydney because they're more known uh, they know what they are. And so Melbourne and Sydney act like a reservoir. People talked about the the exodus of the cities during COVID. Because but- they only rent in those major cities because they're coming over on these visas where they, they're not permanent residents yet. So you get this spike in Sydney, Melbourne rentals, and then they wait two years, which we, this is two years away from seeing the big big buy push of these people. But they'll spend their two years Sydney, Melbourne. Then when they go to buy, they're going to shift to these other sort of capitals which are more affordable, which is two years after they've had their temp visa and now they're a, a permanent resident. Yeah, or depending where they find the job opportunities and the lifestyle yeah, opportunities, lifestyle, job lifestyle yeah. and affordabilities, right? Yeah, and so, which is shown so, in that, that other study. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It doesn't necessarily mean it's, they're all going to wait two years, but like the thing is um, the the exodus from the capital cities that everyone paid attention to during COVID, that ex- because for the first time, the you know the capital cities, they were like, oh shit, we're going, we've got net negative uh, population growth in the cities because the the international inflow had stopped, but the outflow had continued. Right, and so the numbers weren't drastically different during COVID than they'd been all the time. There's always people moving out of the cities and finding opportunities elsewhere in the country. Yeah, so I've actually got, happens is, oh yeah, actually got the got the numbers here too. So the red lines that you see is the net interstate migration. So people are already in Australia leaving. So you can see here the overseas migration into New South Wales, plenty of people coming in, but then there's always more people going out. Same with ACT Tasmania, surprisingly. Um, where's Victoria? Victoria, yeah, that's slightly. about Tasmania, isn't it? Yeah, I, I, I was I was quite interested about that as well. But as you can see here, big inflows into Sydney, Melbourne in terms of overseas, and then reasonable outflows of people that are already in those cities moving interstate from there. So you can see, like Western Australia has got the the trio this year. They've got the overseas immigration coming in, people moving interstate, and then the nat- natural increase in Queensland affect that massively. But yeah, and then Queensland, obviously, that's yeah. Even more in well as well, yeah, yeah. That's super interesting. And South Australia is quite interesting because it's like it's it's neutral uh, interstate mi- interstate migration, which is um, which is fascinating as well. Yeah, it, it is quite interesting. So, okay. So, in previous podcast episodes, we've talked about um, the opportunity to look at unit markets for some degree of uh, affordability opportunity. What other what other kind of things? So, we, we've got these kind of macro trends that are pushing towards, you know, what we can broadly say, look like boom conditions. And, you know, my strong advocation to anyone listening to this is, is if you are able to get involved in the property market, probably try and do that sooner rather than later because you're only going to be spending more and losing more uh, in opportunity costs if you continue to wait because the opportunity exists right now. But outside of that, like where, how can people think on a more granular level around these opportunities? So we, we've identified already that there's in some localized pockets, there's going to be a huge opportunity in um, unit markets, if you know where to look and where that fits in your portfolio, um, we can see that there's these macro trends. What else can you see for 2024? How people can think about this? I'd probably just say another macro trend just to throw in there is the state of the building market as well. So what we've got here is just Oof. total total volume of building approvals, which as you can see, we're at like 2012 lows. And even if you get to the granularity of that, I know we'll just speak about units, but year on year, multi-dwelling approvals, so that's any more than two tenancies on one. So you're talking unit blocks, anything where you're housing a number of people is down 44% year on year and single dwellings down 26%. So what that causes is a massive lack of places for these people that are migrating to Sydney, Melbourne, lots of these capitals and need to rent. They're not permanent visas yet. There's a huge, huge issue with the supply of housing for these people because there's physically no no extra ones being built. Yeah, yeah, that's hectic, isn't it? That's crazy when you sit on a graph like that. Yeah, and even if you start cruising around, it's not just one. Like if I just start jumping around, a few of the capitals and a few of the regions, there, it's not just one place. The rental, a lot of you hear a lot of people going, oh, "I need to invest here because of um, low vacancy rates." Oh, sorry, I've got the wrong, got the wrong sharing. screen sharing. I've noticed that. Taking Tim's Tim's naming protocol, untitled presentation. presentation. Yeah, I'm, I'm good. good at. Good at picking property markets, not slideshows. So I do apologise. <laughs> I'm doing my, doing my best, Steve. 
Um, but yeah, back to back to rents. If I just jump and I'll just do um, I just do vacancy rates because yeah, what I was saying is a lot of people um claim that places are good investments because of low vacancy rates. You can see the trends all across Australia here. You're looking at critical levels of vacancies. So we're in Adelaide, you know, bottom of Adelaide at the moment, 0.2. If we go over back over to our Western Australia or um, anywhere even, let's just go in Rockingham, I bet it's going to be 0.5. You can even go, I even reckon up here in Cairns. I don't think, I think I would do well right now. Oh, that's not right now, Sheridan, but I would do well to find a market over 1.5% vacancy rate so the problem is the problem is definitely here and there's no there's no like it's an existing problem that there's no sort of help on the horizon well so once upon a time though when we didn't have when the when the housing crisis wasn't as bad using vacancy rates as a heuristic for market health for investors was useful because once upon a time not that long ago back when we started dash dot there were some markets that was like three percent they would have been up here said vacancy yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so, you know, we we like if it was below three percent vacancy rate, we were like, okay, that's that a good. good signal. Yeah, that's yeah. good. If it was below one percent, we were like, holy smokes, this is insane. But now, basically, everywhere is less than one percent. So, okay, well, that's that's no longer a useful reference point because we actually proved out this concept. We measure vacancies a little bit differently, which this um this green line over the top more here. This is poor logic. More accurately, yeah, more accurately. Um, but that's this green line over the top. We actually proved with data science this um, neutral band, which I know I've spoken about in a, a previous podcast, but we actually proved back in the stages where we were trying to find places with rental growth and there was a lot of variance in vacancies that um, once our measurement of rental vacancies was below this grey band here, it was extremely, extremely likely that rents would rise. So as you can see with these numbers that are all the way down here, we're well beyond the point where there's stress on the rental market. Yeah. Yeah, and even if I yeah. throw a curveball, I bet if I go super regional, they'll be the same. Let's go about as regional as I can go. Broken here. Humpty Doo. <laughs> I don't know. Do even got any houses in there or just a pub? Yeah. <laughs> A little largest, broken hill. Largest buff, large things <laughs> in the southern hemisphere. Broken, broken hill is one point four percent. So I'm not no no harm to broken hill, but this is sort of what what I mean. It's it's not a singular problem. It's a, a huge macro issue where there's pressure on the rental market wherever you're looking to invest. Yeah. So what advice would you give to property investors that are thinking about investing in twenty two? Because we're right at this time of year, people are thinking you know, the New Year's resolutions type thing. And they're like, right, what's what are, my, what, what are the big goals that I'm going to set myself in 2024? What does success look like for me? How am I going to create the life that I want? What advice would you have to property investors that are thinking about investing in 2024? Um, I would say, and this is not just because we're in the industry, but I would say 2024 is going to be the year that will really sort the wheat from the chaff in terms of location selection. There's going to be locations that perform insanely, like hit record sort of boom numbers, and there's going to be locations that perform suboptimally. I think if you invest in a huge array of places, there's going to be, you know, there's going to be some that will perform with any any number of variants. But I would definitely say um, it's going to be a year where location selection is critical, and as well as that, getting in getting in relatively quickly in a lot of these locations is going to be important, but challenging as well because a lot of them are already in a state of of pretty severe stress. Yeah, it's really interesting as well, right? Like just to, just to give that context, because of the 17-year stock lows, uh, you could find the right place, but there just might not be properties to buy. Right? You can't buy, like you cannot buy on market in some of these places. And and some of the places I was flicking up before in Western Australia, it's very interesting. The way we measure um, supply and demand, you can see the supply, the gross supply of new listing dropping off dramatically. Um, but in terms of demand, when we see that continuing to increase, that means there's still a reasonable amount of trans- transactions going on, which means that virtually no one is buying on-market properties. What's happening, they're not even getting listed, so they're not getting registered as supply. The only transactions that are happening, and definitely the only transactions that are happening at a reasonable price, are all being done off-market. So it's it's very, very challenging to break into some of these markets. Yeah, so... I would actually just point that out that, that that's an interesting thing that investors should be thinking about. If you're working, like, because not everyone's going to work with Dashdot and that's okay, that's all good. Um, uh, but for those of you who are out there, uh, maybe potentially working with someone else or thinking about working with somebody else, probably a red flag you should look for is if you, if they give you, if they, you know, help you find a property like really, really quickly. <laughs> and it's on market and in and a market, market that you know is red hot. Well, it even just, just no, hang on a sec. It doesn't need to be no. Just like forget about the if you know it's red hot. If they present you a property that's on market and they do that fairly quickly, that should be an indication that either the property sucks 
or the location sucks, <laughs> right? Or the so, price you're getting it for sucks is another Yeah, or the price you're getting it for sucks. Like, it's a red flag, right? So, um, one of the uh, unfortunate and challenging things for us at the moment is because of our uh, unwaveringly high standards, uh, it takes time. You know, like, it's, it's taking time because with less properties on market, finding the, the, the gold just takes longer. Um, which is um, which is which is challenging, but it's necessary. And I think that um, there's a real risk that people are going to get impatient in this kind of market as well. And just go, you know what? I'm just going to just let me let me buy something. Let's buy something. And it's like, well, you know, you could be like the example I gave earlier: the people who bought something who got, you know, whatever, ten to fourteen percent growth over three years, or or you could just chill for a second and find the right property, get sixty odd percent growth over three years. Yeah, because it's actually in our duty of care. Like it's it's within our best interest to just. Give you a well, well, not within our best interest, but in terms of speed, you could just give somebody a property and get them out of the system. But actually, it's it's within our duty of care to make sure that if it is going to take longer, it's better you find the right asset and take a little bit longer than just yeah get flicked through the system and buy something suboptimal at a suboptimal price. Yeah, so that's just something to be be careful of in twenty twenty four if you're thinking about buying a property that it is a tough market. It's probably the toughest market um, that tough I've seen. Yeah, I think it's it's a, you know. The whole time I've been at Dashdot, I, I initially was was um, within the analyst team, which looks at all the properties. The whole time I kept saying, you know, next year, next year, next year, we'll be able to buy properties. It'll be a lot easier. Agents will start calling us for properties. Don't worry, next year. Speed, it's been a few years now. We're still, it's getting worse, not better. So it's it's definitely a challenging market. And despite what you see in the media, it's more challenging than it was in peak COVID times in a lot of these areas. Not not less. Love it, love it. That's awesome, Sean. Anything else you want to cover off before we wrap this episode up? No, all good. I think we've covered a lot of ground here. I hope it's been useful. And if you're listening to this and if you want to find property investing success in 2024, as I've mentioned, Dashdot is going to be capping the amount of clients that we take on board. And we're doing that because we need to be able to maintain the quality of service, quality of experience, and quality of results that we get for our clients. And we take that. We take absolute pride in making sure that we do that. So there are going to be very limited uh, spaces for people to be able to work with this in 2024. So if you want to try to participate if you want to see if that's a good fit and see if we can help you too and if we've got enough space then i encourage you to book a call dashdot.com.au forward slash discovery put the link in the show notes this is the start of something big i don't want you to miss out make sure you're taking care as you progress on your wealth journey so you can create the life that you always wanted and quite frankly the life that you deserve sean thanks so much for your time and if you've liked this and you're listening to this and you like it make sure you like rate review share with a family friend friend family friend or loved one till next time See you soon.